1: In 1937, Sigmund Freud wrote to his Welsh colleague and future biographer Ernest Jones that the Austrian people were thoroughly at one with their brothers in the Reich in the worship of anti-Semitism. Freud, 81 at the time, was considering endings, the ending of the psychoanalytic movement in Austria, the ending of his life in Vienna as he had to flee the Nazis, and the possibility for the successful ending of a psychoanalytic treatment. He expressed his thoughts about the latter in an essay called Analysis Terminable and Interminable. To explain the difference between repression and the other ego defenses, Freud turned to the work of Robert Eisler.
0: There was never any doubt that repression was not the only procedure which the ego could employ for its purposes. Nevertheless, repression is something quite peculiar and is more sharply differentiated from the other mechanisms than they are from one another. I should like to make this relation to the other mechanisms clear by an analogy, though I know that in these matters analogies never carry us very far. Let us imagine what might have happened to a book at a time when books were not printed in editions but were written out individually. We will suppose that a book of this kind contains statements which, in later times, were regarded as undesirable as, for instance, according to Robert Eisler, 1929, the writings of Flavius Josephus must have contained passages about Jesus Christ which were offensive to later Christendom. At the present day, the only defensive mechanism to which the official censorship could resort would be to confiscate and destroy every copy of the whole edition. At that time, however, various methods were used for making the book innocuous. One way would be for the offending passages to be thickly crossed through so that they were illegible. Another way, however, if the authorities were not satisfied with this, but wanted also to conceal any indications that the text had been mutilated, would be for them to proceed to distort the text. Single words would be left out or replaced by others, and new sentences interpolated— Best of all, the whole passage would be erased, and a new one which said exactly the opposite, put in its place. The next transcriber could then produce a text that aroused no suspicion, but which was falsified. It no longer contained what the author wanted to say, and it is highly probable that the corrections had not been made in the direction of the truth. If the analogy is not pursued too strictly, we may say that repression has the same relation to the other methods of defense as omission has to distortion of the text, and we may discover in the different forms of this falsification parallels to the variety of ways in which the ego is altered.
1: This week, we will closely examine the method of Islers that inspired Freud to use it as a model for ego defenses. We will also look at another of Eisler's scholarly feuds, placing it in the context of what is probably his most controversial endeavor. No guests in this episode, just me and an incredibly complicated philological argument. I'm Brian Collins, and this is A Very Square Peg, a podcast about Robert Eisler. This is episode number five The Slavonic Josephus. She bon-
2: Passadecora at paruach, be on in
1: Before we get started, we need some background in order to follow the controversy we are going to be looking at in this episode. If I get any of this right, it's because of the work of Kate Adcock and Henry Leeming, as well as Martin Goodman's great little book, *Josephus's The Jewish War, a biography, from Princeton's excellent Lives of Great Religious Books series. If I get anything wrong, which is a safe bet, it's because I am strictly an amateur when it comes to this stuff. But, As Eisler himself put it in a letter to a bewildered Fritz Saxel, I have the courage to err, or err, if you like. First, Josephus. Josephus was born into a priestly family in Jerusalem around the year 37. He was a general who fought against the Romans in Galilee during the First Jewish-Roman War but he surrendered to a Roman commander named Flavius Vespasian in 67 after a siege that ended with the death of all but one of his men, many by suicide. Josephus was imprisoned for two years, during which time he had a divine revelation from the God of Israel that Vespasian would become emperor. When this prediction came true, Vespasian released him. Eventually he became a Roman citizen while remaining a Jew and started writing histories for Roman audiences. The most famous were the Jewish War, written around 75, which was a military history, against Appion, which was a philosophical defense of the Jewish religion, and Antiquities of the Jews, which is famous for containing a reference to Jesus, the oldest one not from a Christian text. We'll talk more about this in a later episode as well. The Jewish War was written in Greek, but in it, Josephus refers to a version he wrote earlier for Jews in the Diaspora, which would have been in Aramaic, the old lingua franca of the Achaemenian Empire. No one has ever discovered this version of the text, which is going to become very important for Eisler. Josephus's writings were not all that popular among the Romans, who mostly knew him not as an author, but as a Jewish prophet who predicted the reign of Vespasian. But early Christians found Josephus' books helpful for understanding the growing division between Jewish and Christian communities. Especially the Jewish War, which described the destruction of the Temple in 70, a disaster of epic proportions. According to Josephus, the God of the Bible had helped the Romans to conquer Jerusalem because of the actions of Jewish tyrants and infighting among the Jews. From about the 4th century, a Latin paraphrase of the Jewish war was circulating in Christian communities. Isa refers to this text as Hegesippus, which is a pseudonym of the author that the text is attributed to, and also probably a corruption of Josephus' real name. It inserts a lot of new material for Christian audiences that explains how God used the Roman army to destroy the temple and punish the Jews because they had rejected Christ. Around the same time there was a Hebrew version of the text called the Seferiosipan that put together bits and pieces of Latin and Greek versions of the Christianized text, but removed the obvious anti-Semitic propaganda. This text was well known among Jewish, Christian, and Muslim audiences and is still a sacred text to Ethiopian Christians. Some people even claimed it was based on the original text Josephus wrote for Jewish audiences in their own language, which they thought was Hebrew. It's useful at this point to talk a little bit about how books circulated in the ancient world. Some books were copied out by scribes to make a duplicate of the original, but others were shortened or combined with other books or parts of other books. The Sefer Yosippon, for example, combines parts of Josephus with the Roman authors Virgil and Livy. Now, the Slavonic Josephus manuscripts come from the 15th century, which is obviously very far from the time of Josephus. What's important is that they were not widely known outside of the Russian-speaking world before the very end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. And, like the Hebrew Seferiosepan and the Latin Hegesippus, it has additional material added to it. But the material is unusual. There are detailed descriptions of battle scenes, and even the exact amount of oil used by the people defiling the temple. These details aren't necessarily the kind of things you would add to an old book. It reads more like they were being copied from somewhere else. This led Alexander Behrens, a Baltic German scholar, to conclude that this text is translated from some version of the Aramaic original Josephus claimed to have written, but which no one had ever seen. Eisler seems at first to have been in agreement with Barents that the source material was the Aramaic original, but then he changed his mind. Eisler settled on the idea that it came from a rough draft written in Josephus' own imperfect Greek and based on the Aramaic original that he wrote for Jewish rather than Roman audiences. It's worth noting here that as a Jew who surrendered to the Romans and then became a Roman citizen, he would have had to explain to Jewish audiences why he was not a traitor and explain to Roman audiences why he was not a foreigner to be suspicious of. Okay, let me sum up the major points here. Keep in mind that I asked numerous Josephus scholars to be interviewed for this show and none of them were able to do it. So this is what we are left with. Point one. The only original version of the Jewish war we know of is Josephus's Greek version. Point two. Josephus mentions having written a non-Greek version for Jewish audiences, which no one has ever seen. We assume it was in Aramaic, but Josephus never says that, and some people thought it was in Hebrew, though that's not likely. Point number three. Alexander Barents, Eisler's scholarly predecessor, identified what he called Aramaicisms in the Slavonic manuscript, like the use of an Aramaic word for whip that does not exist in Greek or Slavonic or so he thought. These convinced him that this text was a more or less direct translation of the original and no longer extant Aramaic manuscript of Josephus's The Jewish War. In 1921 another Russian scholar accepted the evidence of these Aramaicisms in the Slavonic but suggested that it came not directly from Aramaic but through an intermediate Greek source and this is the idea Eisler would take up. Point four. We know Josephus had help polishing up the Greek version of the Jewish War because he learned Greek late in life and because he tells us that he had help with it in another book. And if you go to some Greek writers asking for help making your book look professional, you have to give them something to work with. So Isor's assumption is that a Greek rough draft must have existed. Point five. If there was a Greek rough draft and if there was an earlier Aramaic original, then this Greek rough draft was probably Josephus translating his own Aramaic into Greek as best as he could in order to give his Greek writing coaches something to work with. Similarly, I have a friend who makes money by helping foreign scholars publish in English language journals. They know English, but not well enough to write journal-ready scholarly papers in it, so they translate something they have already written in Chinese or Arabic or whatever their native language is into English, That would be an intermediate draft. And then they send that to him to take their work and help them polish it up. Okay, here we go. Eisler claimed that the Jewish war existed in three Greek editions. The first, called by Eisler, The Capture of Jerusalem, was written in 71 or 73 CE and translated from two copies, one in better shape than the other, of a Greek translation of the Aramaic original, which was written for a Jewish audience. This would be the intermediate Greek text. The second version, written in better Greek by a more proficient collaborator, and taking into account events of the last decade, appeared during the reign of the Emperor Domitian, 81-96. Eisler also hypothesized the third and later edition now lost to us, so forget that. Eisler claimed that the earliest edition, unlike the later versions, was rewritten in Greek, but translated more or less word for word by scribes whose Greek was as poor as Josephus's was. In other words, it was more like a text pieced together by Google Translate than a true translation. The Slavonic Josephus manuscript tradition, according to Eisler, made use of this poorly translated Greek exemplar, and so it retained the sense of the Aramaic original it so faithfully reproduced, which contained the passages about Jesus as a political revolutionary. Why was it a faithful representation of the Greek edition based on the Greek intermediate text of the Aramaic original? Because the scribes copying it out didn't know enough Greek to make the changes. Now, in addition to that, the reason for the Slavonic translators retaining all of the unflattering language about Jesus and his followers and not editing it out as the Christian scribes did was, according to Eisler, the fact that the translation was done by a group of so-called Crypto-Jews in the Orthodox Church who were secretly trying to convert to Judaism the Lithuanian King Mindaugas, who had recently been a pagan and converted to Christianity for the sake of a military alliance. This conspiracy has something to do with the Khazars, a Central Asian group whose rulers became rabbinic Jews in the 8th century. The upshot is that the weirdness of this text, the strangely detailed passages not found in any other manuscript, and the so-called Aramaicisms, are the reasons people wanted to believe it referred to an earlier, lost stratum of Josephus that may have escaped Christian censorship. Again, the supposed survival of this old text lost to the rest of the world was due to the lack of linguistic skills of those scribes which caused them to act more like Google Translate than actual translators. To carry this analogy further, if you know the algorithm and dictionaries used by Google Translate, as well as the source language, it's not too hard to reconstruct the source of a translated passage as it probably appeared originally. Or, to go back to Freud, it's as if they were acting without consciousness, like the person in John Searle's famous Chinese room thought experiment, a challenge to the validity of the Turing test. And Eisler, understanding the rules of distortion and with the ability to detect slips, as it were, could reproduce the underlying text almost word for word, or so he claimed. Now people assumed, as with the Christian Latin version of the text, that the interpolations in the Slavonic Josephus manuscript about Jesus and John the Baptist were just the result of Christian scribes trying to create a fake independent source for the gospel story. But Eisler thought that Josephus himself had written them, and that if you read it carefully, you could tell which parts were inserted later by Christians who came after the crypto-Jewish scribes. Take those parts out and be left with a recreation of the earliest version of the Jewish war. This project, at least until Man and the Wolf, is his most ambitious attempt to use his brilliant mind and vast learning to pull a game-changing new truth out from where it was hiding in plain sight. And, as we saw in the beginning of this episode, it was this ingenious method that Freud used to explain one of his own most important insights. And behind all of this is the parallelism of Eisler, the Jew who became a Christian and tried to live in both worlds, recovering the original words of Josephus, the Jew who became a Roman citizen and tried to live in both worlds. Eisler's highly controversial reconstruction of Josephus' words then became the basis for his new story of Jesus as a political revolutionary which we've already heard Gershom Scholem commenting on in an earlier episode. Why does this matter? Because, if this is true, and the accounts of Jesus in the Slavonic texts are drawn from an older version of the Jewish war, then they are the earliest non-Christian accounts of Jesus we have. They would represent the most accurate picture of Jesus you could hope to find. So obviously Christians were excited about it. Now, let's get back to our story. On April seventeenth, nineteen twenty six, the London Times printed a letter that Eisler had written in response to an unsigned article from five days before, titled A New Version of Josephus: Fresh References to Christianity. Eisler's purpose seems to have been to establish that his work on Josephus came before that of Dr. Vashir Birch, who is profiled in the piece, and whose recent article, A Remarkable Discovery Concerning Jesus Christ, appeared in the inaugural issue of the Liverpool Diocesan Review and it seems to have really gotten under Eisler's skin. In a second letter responding to the same April 12th article, the French archaeologist Solomon Reinach corroborates Eisler's story. You may remember Solomon Reinach's name because he was the one who was attending Eisler's lectures in Paris, according to Gershom Scholem's account. Against Birchard's statement quoted in the article that up until now, the scholarly world has overlooked the importance of the manuscripts, Reinach lists the scholars who have been working on the text since 1906, including Eisler, who he says was the first to say that the Slavonic Josephus might be a translation from the Aramaic version mentioned by Josephus, and that the Slavonic text, if you can remove the Christian interpolations, might shed some new light on events that Josephus had left out of his Greek text. It seems likely to me that Eisler asked Reinach to write a letter to back him up, but I guess it might have been a spontaneous gesture on Reinach's part. At the same time Eisler wrote to the Times, he must have also contacted the Liverpool Diocese itself, which published Birch's article in its newsletter, requesting that the bishop step in and intervene. Eisler explained to the bishop that he was worried that Birch's public claims to be working on an English translation of the manuscripts might result in cancellations of pre-orders for an English edition of Behrens' translation. Eisler said that his concern was for the needy widow and children of his predecessor in the translation, the late Alexander Barents, who would have benefited from the sales of the book. On April 27th, Albert David, the Bishop of Liverpool, wrote a reply. Birch
0: never meant to claim it as his own, and when I first discussed it with him, he explained to me your part in it. All he wanted was to call attention to a new fact well known to a group of scholars but not sufficiently appreciated by the general public. I am sure that most people understood him in that sense.
1: Within a week of writing The Bishop and The Times, Eisler received a note from GRS Mead, who we will talk a little more about in a later episode. Mead was a mutual friend of Eisler and Birch, and he attempted to convince Eisler to end his tirades against Birch, who he referred to as the poor old chap. The letter is hard to make out, it's handwritten, but Mead seems to be saying that Eisler's work is sure to sell better than anything Birch would publish. The implication here is that it was not really the financial problems of the Barents family that most concerned Eisler, but his own. Meade's insinuation is borne out by a letter from Eisler's publisher Methuen that must have worried him. Someone at the publisher's office also heard about Birch's planned publication and told Eisler that they were already in talks to publish Birch's book, not having known until just then that Birch's book and Eisler's planned book were about the same thing. Methuen said they were willing to publish both his and Birch's works, but only if the two projects were significantly different from one another. From the apparent anxiety in his letters, it seems like Eisler did not believe that they were. Eisler spent the summer and early fall of 1926 in an attempt to lock down his publishing contract, unsuccessfully trying to meet in Paris with a representative of Methuen, but in the end successfully negotiating a 12.5% royalty agreement by mail. And whether it was due to Eisler's efforts or not, Birch's book, titled Jesus Christ and His Revelation, Fresh Evidence from Christian Sources and Josephus, was published in 1927, not by Methuen, but by Chapman and Hall who would coincidentally go on to merge with Methuen in the next decade. According to his letter, Eisler had begun his attempts to reconstruct a lost Greek textual tradition of Josephus in 1912, ten years after the publication of Studies in Value Theory. It was early December 1924 when he first began publicly lecturing on the Slavonic Josephus, addressing the Anglo-Palestinian club at Jews College of London on the subject. And that lecture came a little less than a month after Eisler reports having conversed about the text with none other than George Bernard Shaw. In January of 1926, Eisler was in Paris, where he discussed his work on the manuscripts with the English philologist and public intellectual Gilbert Murray. Murray was the one who had gotten him the ill fated position with the International Commission for Intellectual Cooperation. And now we have come back around to what Scholem called the sad turning point in Eisler's life. Eisler is in Paris, has lost his diplomatic posting with the International Commission for Intellectual Cooperation, is giving lectures on the revolutionary Jesus, and is visited by Gershom Scholem and Walter Benjamin. After the break, we will continue talking about the Slavonic Josephus and watch Eisler get into a pretty nasty feud with an established Jewish scholar in America, Solomon Zeitlin.
2: I am a man be a a a a
1: Eisler published his fullest account of Jesus as a political revolutionary, and yet another massive German book. This one, for some reason, bearing a Greek title, written in Greek letters, that translates to something like, Jesus, the King who did not rule. The full translated title would be, Jesus, the King who did not rule. The Messianic Independence Movement, from the appearance of John the Baptist to the downfall of Jacob the Righteous, after the newly discovered conquest of Jerusalem by Flavius Josephus and the Christian sources. The book is about 1,300 pages, published in two volumes, the first in 1929 and the second in 1930. In 1931, he published a one-volume abridgment in English translation called The Messiah, Jesus, and John the Baptist, according to Flavius Josephus's recently rediscovered Capture of Jerusalem and Other Jewish and Christian Sources, which must be the book he was afraid was going to be scooped by Vasher Birch. In all of these works, his basic argument is that when Jesus made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem for Passover, both Romans and Jews saw it as a political act that set off a messianist rebellion. And this rebellion was the real reason Jesus was crucified under a sign reading King of the Jews. This would at least explain why Simon Peter was ready with a sword when the Romans came to arrest Jesus in the garden. Needless to say, Eisler got a lot of attention for making these arguments. One fan of the book was a Bolshevik sympathizer and member of parliament called Morgan Phillips Price. Price wrote to Eisler in 1938 that the Messiah Jesus and John the Baptist was one of the greatest works which had appeared in our time. He also said that he would use the book as a basis for the occasional semi-religious speeches he was expected to make as a parliamentary candidate, adding that he would do so even if it meant risking causing offense to his audiences. Eisler also gained a new Christian adversary in J.W. Jacks, who wrote an entire monograph dedicated solely to refuting his arguments point by point in 1933. It was titled, The Historic Christ, an examination of Dr. Robert Eisler's theory according to the Slavonic version of Josephus and the other sources. Clearly in mortal terror of Christendom slipping all at once into an Eislerian abyss, Jacks begins with these ominous lines.
0: It is well that Christian people should understand what changes will be involved in our hitherto accepted view of Jesus of Nazareth if the assertions of Dr. Robert Eisler should come to prevail. New Testament scholars, through the patient researches of the last century and a half, since the Gospels began to be treated as historical documents and not as a collection of infallible texts, have built up bit by bit on solid foundations what they believe to be the correct theory of the person and work of Jesus. They have succeeded in doing this by their use of careful, critical sense, which has led them to reject uncertain or untrustworthy evidence. The theory of Eisler would overturn this well-built structure. What is the theory? It is well known that in Josephus's Antiquities, the accepted text mentions the appearance in Jewish history of a certain Jesus who was the Christ, a wise supernatural man of marvellous works who was crucified by Pilate owing to the charges made against him by the Jewish leaders but who reappeared alive the third day afterwards as the prophets had foretold and became, through the zeal of those who had loved him from the first, the founder of the fruitful race of Christians. This is the celebrated Testimonium Flavianum, which led Eusebius and all later Christian writers to regard Josephus, in spite of his strong Jewish bent, as an outstanding witness to the Christian faith. In the Slavonic version of Josephus's Jewish War, however, there are at least some seven or eight remarkable fragments, what Berens has called tsutsa or additions on Jesus, John the Baptist, and the early Christians. According to Eisler, this version is the genuine original one on the war issued by Josephus, and the fragments show that Jesus was little more than a revolutionary against the Roman authority, a political messiah who aspired to the Jewish throne and who paid for his folly by his life. If Eisler is right in this tumultuous intervention, as Père Lagrance calls it, he must be regarded as the author of a formidable religious revolution, and future ages will be entitled to call him the father of Christian history. But if he is wrong, his theory, in spite of his immense scholarship and dialectical skill, can only exhibit, as Maurice Gogel says, one of the most prodigious errors of judgment and method ever made in the domain of historic studies. It involves such a vast change in our religious outlook that it might be taken as a mere humorous fancy if it were not so terribly serious. For it is nothing less than the replacing of the founder of the Christian religion, the supreme ethical teacher of the world, by a vulgar insurgent against the Roman authority who put himself at the head of a band of lawless followers in an effort to raise sedition, but was captured and crucified.
1: Eisler's controversial claims also set off a war of words in the pages of the Jewish Quarterly Review between 1927 and 1931 with the established Jewish scholar Solomon Zeitlin. Zeitlin was four years younger than Eisler, and his career was on a very different track. He was a Russian Jew who had studied in Paris and then came to America to get his Ph.D. at Dropsy College, the first degree-granting institution for postgraduate Jewish studies in the U.S. He was an expert on Josephus, rabbinical literature, and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Eisler had died before these really became public, but he would have had a field day with them. Zeitlin became the distinguished professor of post-biblical literature at Dropsy University, served as editor of the Jewish Apocryphal Literature Series, shaped the field with the many students he trained, and edited the Jewish Quarterly Review from 1940 until his death in 1976 at the age of 90. When he first met with Zeitlin in 1926, Eisler wanted to share what he knew about the planned publication of Barents' translation of the Slavonic text. Barents himself had died in 1912, so Eisler met with the man in charge of the translation project, Conrad Grass, in Estonia, to look at the manuscripts. It was crucial to actually see the manuscripts themselves, or at least high-quality photographs of them, in order to make the kind of philological and text-critical arguments Eisler was making. So when he realized, or at least perceived, that he wasn't getting the same access as other, more traditional Jewish scholars, he was incensed. There is no substitute for first-hand knowledge of manuscripts when your argument depends on looking at the way the words are actually written. Zeitlin himself traveled to Russia on July 17, 1926, to photograph and examine the Josephus manuscripts, according to an article from the Jewish Daily Bulletin. Zeitlin told the paper that once he saw the Slavonic texts themselves up close, he would be able to tell very quickly whether or not they were translated from Aramaic. Apparently, Zeitlin was able to look at more texts than Eisler had been able to which Eisler suggested was because he was a real Jewish scholar, unlike himself. And after he saw them, Zeitlin concluded that they were medieval texts that had nothing to do with any original Josephus manuscripts from the first century, and that Eisler's theories were based on an amateur's overconfident readings of second-hand sources. Zeitlin was well known as a harsh critic of those he disagreed with, and he really seemed to regard Eisler as a joke, which he made very clear in his many printed attacks.
0: The two papers which I have written, the Christ passage in Josephus and the Slavonic Josephus, have been severely criticized by Dr. R. Eisler, the former in his book, and the latter in his recent article published in this review. As his discussions are given in considerable part to personalities, I was at first inclined to make no further statement on my views at this time, especially since According to Edwin Bevan, the Slavonic Josephus is still regarded by the great majority of scholars as a mare's nest. But Dr. Eisler's arguments will doubtless be read by laymen as well as by specialists, and I feel that they ought not to go unanswered, or his conclusions to stand unchallenged. In the following pages, I shall endeavor to show that none of Dr. Eisler's contentions is well-founded. But so far as possible, I shall refrain from touching on the invectives or irrelevancies in which his discussion abounds. Thus, Dr. Eisler has directed considerable attention to the misprints in my article, which I greatly regret. Certainly, Dr. Eisler should know that misprints are unavoidable in any publication, for he has allowed many of them to creep into his own work. But these things have no real power on the important questions which he and I are trying to answer. And I shall therefore simply take up seriatim Dr. Eisler's arguments, as they are set forth in his latest article.
1: Zeitlin then goes on to point out the various flaws and unwarranted suppositions in Eisler's argument. And like every other scholar who has ever been criticized in print, Eisler says he is fine with being criticized as long as it is done in good faith. And also like every other scholar who has ever been criticized in print, Eisler felt that the criticisms of him were not done in good faith. He was clearly angry with Zeitlin's insinuations that he was out of his scholarly depth. In a 1930 article addressing Zeitlin's criticisms, Eisler echoes his resentment about what he perceives as the added authority non-Jews tended to give the pronouncements of people like Zeitlin with real Jewish bona fides.
3: Professor Solomon Zeitlin has devoted an article in the REJ and two long essays in the JQR to the moot question of Josephus' witness to the life and death of Jesus and the relationship of the Slavonic translation to the original text of the Jewish war. A large part of all three articles is devoted to a criticism of my own various contributions to the subject. For this I should be sincerely thankful were it not for a number of mistakes, misstatements, and misquotations which disfigure both essays. I have dealt with Professor Zeitlin's arguments in my German book. Since I cannot, however, Burden the English and the American edition of this work with discussions of other authors' views of the subject, and since a number of English-speaking readers are unable or unwilling to turn to the bulky German original, it is all the more imperative for me to rectify Professor Zeitlin's errors in the language and in the periodical in which they have appeared. Because non-Jewish students of classical philology are always inclined to accept a learned, Talmudist statement as an authoritative ex-cathedra pronouncement of Jewish science about the problem of Jewish history.
1: It's obvious that Eisler was as much as anything else frustrated at being shut out of the world of Jewish scholarship yet again as he had been with Sholem and Buber. Zeitlin using his access to the text, Eisler was not granted permission to examine to undercut Eisler's argument with salt in his wounds.
3: Everyone interested in this question and I, more than anybody else, would have welcomed the honest collaboration of a Russian-Jewish scholar, fortunate enough to be allowed to work on the spot for the elucidation of the many still-unsolved problems of our text. What I object to is the uh, posing on the strength of a few hours of study on our Russian libraries and authority, or as the sole authority on these matters, and to presume to discredit the laborious work of others, based on a large number of photographs, collations and trustworthy apographs as conclusions based on a translation without examining the manuscript in the original.
1: Eiser's arguments about the Slavonic Josephus have various holes in them that are beyond my knowledge. Suffice it to say that few people are convinced today that the manuscripts have preserved any original passages of Josephus that were lost to the other traditions. But his work, especially his reconstruction of the physical description of Jesus, made a huge impact, as we will continue to see throughout this podcast. We will hear from some Christians who were visited by visions of Jesus just to prove that Eisler's description was wrong. We will meet a Jehovah's Witness in a concentration camp who saw Eisler's theory of the political nature of Jesus' movement as support for his own theological beliefs and we will see a high-ranking SS officer who is expelled from the Nazi party after he is caught plagiarizing Eisler's work. Even today, you can find references to Eisler's writings on the Slavonic Josephus on some Afrocentric Christian websites, as evidence that Jesus was not the white man Christian art tends to portray him as. But that's all in the future. And that's all for this episode. Next week, we will go with Eisler to Washington, D.C. as he tries to convince the Senate Subcommittee to adopt his dual-currency monetary system, and we'll take a close look at a dream he had in his mother's house. For this week's episode, the voice of Robert Eisler was provided by Caleb Crawford with additional voices by Brian Evans. Throughout the podcast, I've received assistance with engineering, recording, and editing from March Wesolesky and Logan Marshall. The music is Shibboleth Baseda, recorded by Ayaakum Shapira and his Israeli orchestra. Partial funding has been provided by the Ohio University Humanities Research Fund and the Ohio University Honors Tutorial College Internship Program. Special thanks also go to the Warburg Institute and the School of Advanced Study at the University of London. <laughs>
2: I am a man a a pari,